Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this episode about what happens at the gynecologist's office is coming courtesy of listener requests. And it's one, too, that I'm, I'm surprised that we haven't talked about before because... If, you know, this entire podcast is built on the premise of talking about lady things, Mm -hmm. and can you get more vaginal than the gynecologist's office? I submit that you cannot. You can't really get much more vaginal than that. And also, I feel like what happens at the gynecologist's office is something that at some point everybody kind of wonders what happens. I remember reading uh, when I was uh, in my early teens, reading about those stories in like Seventeen Magazine mm-hmm. or YM or Jane, all those magazines that, are, that no longer exist Yeah, uh, about, you know, what to expect. Because it was terrifying, the the prospect of going into that office and having someone examine your vagina. Honestly, the worst part is the finger pricking where they test your your blood, your iron level, and and the stirrups. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can get into all the stirrups We'll later. get into the stirrups. We will get later. into the stirrups. Liter- figuratively. Yeah. Figuratively. And I'm, I'll go ahead and say, spoiler alert, things are not as scary no. as they might seem. No. You know? So also for, for fellow listeners out there, and by fellow I am referring to... To men, don't be scared. Keep on, keep on listening. Let's go to the gynecologist, shall we? Let, let's go. But let's, uh, Caroline, you unearthed some gynecological history that has a tie-in to your family. Yeah, this is this is nuts. When I was reading this, I was like, you know, it's one of those things where you, 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 you look around for someone to be like, this is so co- cool. There's no one here to tell. Okay, well, so then I emailed Kristen, and then it was better, but. So, there's a lot of interesting history about gynecology. It did not just spring up overnight out of nowhere. This is coming from the Postgraduate Medical Journal in 2002. And they're talking about the development of obstetrics, which is the medical care of pregnant women, and how it was originally the responsibility of midwives. So it was not this big medical thing, necessarily. It wasn't like lords and ladies went to the doctor's office, mm-hmm. you know, for those prenatal visits or anything. But in the 17th century, European physicians began to attend on royal deliveries. And so the practice grew and eventually trickled down to the middle classes. But one thing about these 17th century attending physicians yes. and whatnot is that they used a tool known as obstetric forceps. And and doctors still use those. They're, you know, those things that like, boop, like just get the baby out. Like the tongs? Yeah, like baby tongs. Yeah, like <laughs> you pull your chicken off and your then, And then you flip it over uh-huh. so it can brown on the other side. Yeah, well, obstetric forceps were apparently developed. And if anybody out there knows more, please, please tell us. But they were developed by a particular family. You are beaming right now, Caroline. I know. Well, I am such I am such a genealogy nerd. Like I have traced my family on all sides, like so far back, back to England. And and one thing that I had taken note of is the Chamberlain family. So I I Chamberlains are are part of my people. And a lot of them came from France to England. They they were Huguenots, they got out of France, came to England and started working for the royal family. Turns out those are the people who developed the frickin' obstetric forceps. And they kept it like a family secret for the better part of a century. So if you were a royal lady, you know, giving birth and you needed the assistance of some forceps, some baby tongs, chances are it was going to be a chamberlain. 
And the thing is, they wanted to keep it such a secret that a lot of times they would do it under a sheet. Why do you think they wanted to keep it such a secret? Because it had to deal with an instrument that went inside of a vagina? I don't know. I don't know. It seemed like the way that it was written, it seemed more like it was just like a trade secret. Oh, like, magically okay. the baby is here now. How did we do it? Oh, the stork just popped up in here. The old Chamberlain forceps. So, yeah, I that. I just, that's my, that's my total, uh, gynecological nerd out moment. I like it. Gynecological, genealogical, magical mystery tour. Ooh, need a t-shirt with that <laughs> on it. <laughs> so anyway, moving forward, other things happened. By the early 19th century, obstetrics was established as a recognized medical discipline and midwifery. That's right, folks. Midwifery had become a compulsory subject in Britain. Yeah. Now, when it comes to gynecology more as we know it, uh, we got to touch on for a second a fellow named J. Marion Sims, who is known as the father of modern gynecology, thanks to his successful operating technique that he developed for a vesicovaginal fistula. Um, basically, it's a childbirth complication where a hole develops between the bladder and the vagina, which leads to urinary incontinence and a lot of other problems. And he figured out how to how to fix that. But J. Marion Sims, although when he died, he was hailed, you know, as this father of modern gynecology, but history has not shed such a favorable light on J. Marion Sims because one of the reasons why he was able to develop this operating technique was because uh, between late 1845 and the summer of 1849, he carried out repeated operations on black slave women. Yeah, and did did it without anesthesia. Yeah, this was happening in Montgomery, Alabama. And it, as you can imagine, that kind of surgery without anesthesia, as you say, uh not not very uh not very pleasant. And it wasn't just like he operated on them once or twice. One woman uh that he was operating on had both vesico and rectovaginal fistula. She underwent 30 operations before Sims was able to surgically close the holes. Yeah, and so um, in contemporary times, you know, medical historians don't think so highly of J. Marion Sims. Other people have still come to his events to say, oh, but he he's still done all of this for, you know, made these advances for modern gynecology. Um, but, yeah, I, f- I feel like this is one I would I would like to for stuff you missed in history class to to maybe do a podcast on J. Marion Sims, because I, w- I would like to know more about him. Yeah. Let's take a big leapfrog in history to to today's gynecological office. I know that we're, there's there's a lot of history that we're brushing over, but we want to get to and really focus on in this episode what happens in the gynecological office. What do those Chamberlain forces <laughs> do, Caroline? Um, but before we get to that, question, the qu- first question to tackle is when should this start happening? When should young women first go to the gyno? Um, basically, within three years of sexual activity. This is according to Go Ask Alice. Uh, of course, that sexual activity is not necessarily vaginal intercourse 
or at age 21, whichever comes first. And the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends earlier between 13 and 15. Yeah, and uh, ACOG, the American College of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, recommends that going at such a young age, not necessarily because they are sexually active, but instead to start building a doctor-patient rapport. Because, as you can imagine, when it comes to discussing your vagina... It helps to have a relationship with, with someone because it can, right. you know, the first time you see, even now, the first time you see a doctor and you have to talk about your vagina, you know, it can be a little awkward. Yeah. And like, hello, doctor. This is my vagina. Yeah. Me, hello. Welcome. Introduction. Hello. Yeah. Vagina Very, doctor. Doctor shaking vagina. Shaking of hands. Um, I actually, I went to the gynecologist for the first time when I was 17 or 18. My mother had said... Um, I feel like I've told this story before, but let's retell it because it's everybody. Tell it. So anyway, um, yeah, my mom had said, you know, when you think you are ready to have sex and you want to go on birth control, tell me and I won't ask any questions. I will just take you to the gynecologist. Good well, on you, that, Sally. That sounds great, right? Yeah. In theory, on paper, it sounds fantastic. What did Sally do? When you actually tell Sally, okay, mom, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, it's time that I go to the lady doctor Oh, I mean, there were tears, They're, like red in the face. Like, are you sure? I mean, oh my god, I just can't. I can't believe. Are you? Are you serious? A lot of that. I mean, she took me, and it was no problem, and it was not awkward, and it was good that my mother like put that out there so that I didn't have to feel like, you know, how do I bring it up to my mother? Like, it's good that she put it on the table mm-hmm. to begin with, but still, it was a lot of like me sitting there, like, are you done yet? <laughs> Can we just go? Well, I was I was a little fortunate in that I, I went around the same time. So I think I was eighteen, and my doctor was able. She was a, a GP, the general practitioner, but she was able to to do gynecological stuff as well. So I've been going to her for a little while, and was finally like, "Hello, doctor, I'd like to make a vagina appointment." <laughs> and and it was no big deal because I already, you know, I knew her and she was yeah. she was a great doctor and made me feel very comfortable. Um so but let's let's go through the steps. Now we know around what ages it is recommended to happen, but but what about what actually happens? What can people expect aside from feeling nervous because it is perfectly normal to feel nervous about that first visit right yeah i mean you're going to be in you're going to be in a little bit of a hospital gown type situation when you're in the exam room but they're going to ask you questions just like any doctor would about your family and personal medical history so you've got to answer questions about you know do certain conditions run in your family basically they're going to ask you questions about your period you know your menstrual cycle and sexual activities that you may or may not be having you know if you have questions too yeah and the thing about uh the questions about sexual activity it is so important to be honest with your gynecologist and that comes down to things like if you're not using condoms, go ahead and tell your doctor you haven't been using condoms. If you have cheated on a partner, if you have suspicions that your partner has cheated on you, etc., all of these things, number of partners, birth control methods that you've tried, age of becoming sexually active, the doctor is not there to judge you for anything that you have done. And if you do feel slut-shamed by your doctor, find a new doctor. Yeah. Um, but it, it's crucial to, to be, to be honest because those kinds 
kinds of that kind of information can help guide the doctor into recommending kinds of birth control that you might need or uh, tests like STD panels that might be wise for you to get. Yeah. Exactly. Well, there all, there will also be examinations of the breast. They, they'll listen to your lungs and heart. They'll check your blood pressure and weight and also check your abdomen. And if if you so desire, STI screenings and evaluation for contraception, if you haven't had those discussions yet. Yeah. And um, at age 21, it's recommended that women start getting pap smears. And what happens with a pap smear? Because I remember, too, hearing about pap smears. And thinking, why is it called a smear? That sounds horrible. And I, I think I had overheard my mom talk about how it was uncomfortable. So I was just dreading it. But pap smears are really not as bad as they might seem. Basically, what happens? Here we go, folks. What happens is the doctor will insert a speculum into the vagina, and the speculum simply holds the... I'm using hand gestures right now in the studio because I talk with my hands. Um, they insert a speculum into the vagina, which holds the vaginal walls apart. That allows the doctor to see into the cervix, to, to, to look at the cervix, and then take specimens of said cervix using swabs. And those cervix swabs, or cervical swabs, I should say, are important to check for things like abnormal cell growth, screening for cervical cancer, and just looking at the uh, the that internal and external exam is also checking for lesions, inflammation, unusual discharge, just making sure... All those parts are healthy. Yeah. I mean, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. No. The speculum is cold. Speculum is cold. Speculum is cold. But it, it shouldn't be outright painful. And if it is, you should definitely tell your doctor. And, and, and relax. I mean, it helps to breathe. Just breathe, relax, yeah. because, you know, they're not there to hurt you. Right. Everybody's there to help you, so just relax. And now this might not happen during your first gynecological visit, especially if you are younger and if you aren't yet sexually active. Um, but it's also very common for the doctor to perform a pelvic exam um, unless uh, you are on you're having abnormal bleeding or severe pain. Um, but with the pelvic exam, things do get a little more personal because this time the doctor will actually insert their gloved fingers into the vagina to and, and press down on uh, the outside of the abdomen to feel around and make sure that everything is as it should be as well. Yeah. Now, during during your visit, especially if it's your first time going to this doctor, ask ask questions. Don't don't be afraid to speak up to tell your doctor your concerns and and get some answers to what you're thinking about. You know, things like contraception, irregular periods, STDs, vaccines. Like I got my HPV vaccine at my gynecologist's office. Um, and also, if you're having any aches or pains that you can't explain or that are scaring you or that just don't seem normal. And if it is your first time at the gynecologist, ask the doctor before he or she gets started, ask the doctor to explain what is about to happen and why they're doing it. And the doctor will talk you through the pelvic exam, can talk you through pap smears, um, and that might also aid in relaxing you and kind of keeping your mind off of any discomfort that might be happening. But we're talking about 20 minutes all told from intake to exams and everything. It really doesn't take that long at all to get a gynecological exam. And I, I feel like the 
you know, the reputation of going to the gyno is that you're going to be in, in for a lot of un- discomfort and awkward pain. And I don't, I don't think that's really the case. No. I mean, but I also, I mean, that does depend on your doctor too, like how that's comfortable true. you are. You know, you want to find a doctor that you mesh well with, who answers your questions, doesn't make you feel rushed. Because I know my gynecologist, she's actually been on like CNN and stuff. Like she's, she's a higher up gynecologist lady person. And, but she still takes the time to answer any, it's, you know, it's not like she's too important mm-hmm. to do her job. Right. So yeah, make sure that you do find a doctor you're comfortable with and, and don't feel bad. You know, if you're a teen living at home, to speak up and tell your parents, like, "Mm, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Right. And speaking of teens living at home especially, there might be questions about doctor-patient confidentiality. If, say, you are still living with your parents and you are sexually active or you're thinking about becoming sexually active, maybe you want to get on birth control, maybe you want to talk to your doctor about it. If you are nervous that the doctor will then turn around and tell your mom, what just, you know, what, what your concerns are, what your sexual concerns are. Here's some more information on that confidentiality. Yeah. Planned parenthood in particular, uh, let's, uh, emphasizes that most healthcare providers do keep their clients' information confidential, but some providers may not be able to guarantee complete confidentiality. So it can't hurt to ask, like, is this going to stay between us? Just, I mean, if for nothing else, than peace of mind. Yeah, and and for a little more detail on especially um, visits with teenagers, teenage patients and their parents, uh, this is coming from Dr. Mark LaFlower, who's the chief of the Division of Gynecology and the co-director of the Center for Young Women's Health at Children's Hospital Boston. And he says that in all of their reproductive health care visits, we like to meet with the parents or guardians and the young woman at the same time. Then we like to meet with the teenager alone to hear her concerns and get together again with her parents at the end of the visit for summarization and to make a health plan. Ideally, we establish a confidential relationship with limits that are clear to both the teen and her parent. We want to let the young woman know that what she discusses with her gynecologist can be confidential if she chooses it to be. And there's a 2010 study that we found in the Contraception Journal that was looking at whether or not OBGYNs would disclose to parents that their 17-year-old, and this was a fictional 17 year old freshman uh, in college wanted birth control pills. And so they surveyed all of these OBGYNs and found that most OBGYNs will provide adolescents with contraceptives without notifying their parents. So that is that's a good thing for uh, teens to keep in mind if they are nervous about the first visit, that if they disclose something that the doctor will disclose it then to their parents, that is generally not the case. I think a lot of times when it comes to the doctor disclosing to parents, it's in cases of uh, the the child being in direct harm. Yeah. And they also looked at a couple other factors. 47% of the doctors they surveyed said that they would encourage the teen to involve her parents. So while most... If, you know, 94%, while most would provide those contraceptives for the teen, a big chunk would say, okay, well, we'll give you this, but, you know, maybe you should bring your parents into the fold. Slightly more, 54% would advise abstinence until she's older. 
So, but still, contraceptives are being contraceptives are being provided. They're just saying, "Hey, maybe you should think about doing X, Y, Z." Yeah, because best case scenario, there's a healthy relationship between the parent and the kid, kind of the same way, Caroline, that you had with your mom, where it was an open door policy of saying, "Hey, you know what? If you want to do this, if you feel you need to do this, come and tell me. I won't judge you. We'll go to the doctor together, and everything will be fine." Um, and we would encourage. You know, teens to to talk to their parents or guardians about that kind of stuff, if that's possible. But it is also good to know that options are available um, from doctors directly. Yeah. Uh, so when it comes though to selecting a gynecologist, um, one thing I remember talking to my mom about was telling her that I wanted a female gynecologist specifically. Because she went to a male gynecologist, and um, not only was he the father of a childhood friend of mine, so I was like, I just really don't <laughs> want that doctor looking at my vagina. That would just be too awkward. Um, but I, I, I specifically wanted a female because I figured that I would be more comfortable with that. And that's been attributed, that idea that women prefer female gynecologists is now being attributed with a trend of fewer men going into gynecology. Yeah. There's actually been been lawsuits and a lot of people are upset saying that they are men saying that they have been discouraged from pursuing gynecology as a specialty. Well, the fascinating thing is if you look at the statistics, female gynecologists haven't even been around in doctor's offices all that long. This is also coming from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in 1970. Only 7.1% of OBGYNs were women. But then in 2009, that number jumped to 46.9%. And now when you look at residency programs, it is far and away led by women looking to get into uh, OBGYN practices. Yeah, and this is coming from a New York Times article from 2001 who quoted Dr. John Musich, who was at the time the chairman of the Council on Resident Education in Obstetrics and Gynecology. There it is. He said, it's a huge issue for male medical students. We can't force patients to see a particular gender, and there are women who feel that women are more sensitive as physicians to female complaints than men might be. And so, I mean... Whether that's true or not, whether a woman is more sensitive to gynecological needs than a male doctor is, I mean, you you can't change people's feelings or perceptions. I also wanted to go to a female gynecologist, and I ended up going to my mother's. Like, so she sees both of us, and, you know, we know all the nurses, and I feel comfortable calling them and talking to them about any issues I have. But that's, I mean, that's just me. One of my very good friends strongly prefers a male gynecologist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, that was the thing that we wanted to find was whether or not Statistics bear out that idea that women will overwhelmingly prefer female gynecologists, and it ain't necessarily so. Um, this was coming from the Journal of American Osteopathic Association from 2005, uh, where they went around to 13 OBGYN waiting rooms in Connecticut. So maybe this is just a Connecticut thing. Could okay, be. Who knows? it could be. But uh, they found that a majority of the patients they talked to, 66.6 percent had no gender bias when selecting an OBGYN. And an even larger majority, over 80%, felt that physician gender did not influence the quality of care. Yeah. And this is backed up also 
the, the not having a strong gender preference in a 2002 article in Obstetrics and Gynecology that found that the more important factors were really interpersonal and communication style and technical expertise. So if you feel like you're being listened to and if your doctor knows what he or she is talking about, that's more important than whether it's a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, when I moved to Atlanta, where HealthStuffWorks.com is located, um, I needed to find a new doctor. And I wasn't so much concerned about finding a male or female doctor, but one that came highly recommended from people that I knew. And that happened to be a woman. And she was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that, yeah, in, in this regard, a lot of times... Uh, you know, maybe that kind of gender biases. It, it does swing toward women, but it's not as overwhelming as it might seem in terms of women just demanding women only uh, gynecologists. Although I will say that my gynecology office is just a vaginal haven of pink and estrogen, just clouds floating around. It's incredible. I've <laughs> The only, I've seen like men in there every now and then, like if they come in with their, their wives. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, you know, there aren't any, any male doctors at all in the practice and the walls are literally pink. It's huh. Incredible. Cause you know, g- women only have female babies. Yeah, and women girl are, babies, and women only like pink. Yeah, that, obviously. Um, but I, I mean, I thought the discrimination issue that that people have raised was interesting. Um, Dr. Aaron Tracy, who's the chairwoman of ACOG Junior Fellow Advisory Council, said that at some medical schools, male medical students are being discouraged from going into OBGYN. It really is reverse discrimination. We don't want this to be a specialty just for women. And so there's, you know, there's this grumbling about. Are men being told, like, don't do this? Or are they just being told, like, maybe you would make more money elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Because it has been harder for male OBGYNs to find practices that that want them because there are some practices that are exclusively hiring for women. Yeah, and, and in this article that we were reading, like, it, it talks a lot about how people have noticed that the minute they hire a, a woman gynecologist on the team, she is just her schedule's packed mm-hmm. immediately. It's it's taken up, and so one man who had uh, had brought a lawsuit was saying like I was fired because of gender discrimination when his bosses were saying well it really had more to do that you weren't bringing in the bucks, whereas our our female doctors were. Yeah, so I'd be curious to uh, to hear from any OBGYNs listening or nurse practitioners who work in OBGYN offices as to whether or not that does seem to be the case. Yeah. Um, so I hope that this is offered, though, a, a decent overview of what to expect at the OBGYN. We've talked about selecting doctors, talked about what happened. We've talked about the old speculum, the pelvic exam. Yep. Um, so let's talk about, let's end things on a bit of a lighter note. And that is the fact that sometimes, especially because of the nature of the gynecologist's office, and by the nature of it, I do mean being very vaginally focused. Mm-hmm. Funny things can happen sometimes. Yeah, like, oh, I don't know, your feet are up in the stirrups and your, your gynecologist offers to come on your podcast and talk. Did that happen to you? <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> maybe. We don't really have that kind of show, but thank you. If you could just get back down in there. That'd so you got, you got an interview pitch while someone <laughs> was examining your cervix. That's true. 
Oh man, the things that happen to <laughs> to podcasters—it's amazing. Um, yeah, there was uh, an article that was originally published on Radar. Uh, this is by Dory Schaefer, and they were asking women to write in about the odd things that gynecologists had told them. And just let's just throw out a couple, such as Sarah from Brooklyn, apparently, <laughs> said, my gynecologist recently told me that I have an adorable uterus. What What does that mean? I want to know what, well, I mean, what? It's polka dotted. <laughs> it has a, <laughs> it wears a Peter Pan collar. Ah, it makes cupcakes. Yeah, similarly, Kate reported uh, to Radar that I once had a female doctor tell me my cervix was cute. Not sure what that means, but I took it as a compliment. I would, too. Yeah, I mean, they would know, wouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, whether you have a cute cervix or one that just has a good personality. I think the most uncomfortable thing that's ever happened to me in the gynecologist's office is not something that someone said, but when the doctor screamed, uh, because this was a new doctor. It was the first time I was going to this doctor, and, you know, you put your feet in the stirrups, and then you have to scoot down. Yeah. And that's that's one of the most awkward parts it for is. me now. It is. scooting. Yeah, because she's like, okay, you know, it's... Come on, scoot down. And I was like, I scoot a little bit. She's like, no, no, keep scooting. And I was like, okay, I'll keep scooting. And she was like, no, keep. And I was like, all right, I'm coming. And then <laughs> I keep scooting. And she goes, whoa, whoa, too close. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh I am sorry. My vagina's too close to your face now. That's kind of. And then I had to scoot back. You know what's embarrassing? <laughs> Having to scoot back. On the exam table. That's kind of harsh, Kristen. I know. I never went back. I probably wouldn't have either. Yeah, I did not appreciate that bedside manner. Now I'm blushing because I'm talking about my vagina. Oh, my God. I can't believe that. Why would a doctor say that? I I thought, well, I mean, I don't know. Some doctors are just more abrupt than others. Yeah. So beware the scoot. Yeah. Careful scoot. The scoot is awkward. Yeah. Because you're like, I naturally kind of don't want my vagina... You know, when I'm in stirrups in a very cold room in a gown, I don't want to scoot it where it's vulnerable. Yeah. But you have to. you got to scoot. But not too much. And with that, (laughs) (laughs) thus concludes our visit to the gynecologist's office. Next episode, we're going to do something on prostate exams. Psych. Although maybe we should. Yeah. I mean, we don't have personal stories about it. No. (laughs) No turning and coughing for us. All right. And with that... uh, Listeners, please write us about awkward gynecology visits. Anything that we didn't touch on, any lingering questions about what goes on at the gynecologist, um, anything OBGYN related. Also, yeah, any, if there are any dude gynecologists listening, we want to hear from you as well. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your emails. Yes, I have here a letter from Caitlin in response to our food porn episode, Kristen. She says, as a sociology major in undergrad, I find this topic very interesting. However, this issue of food as it relates to culture is not new. Pierre Bordeaux, Bourdieu? Fine, something, a French name. A French sociologist wrote about food in French culture in the 1970s. He argued that our taste in food is dictated to us by our class, i.e. socioeconomic status. We also express that status to others in the food we eat or the food that tastes good to us. 
Skipping over the philosophical route that this discussion could take, do we like a particular food because it tastes good or because we think it tastes good? Bordeaux's work and that which has followed gives us the opportunity to think about why we make the choices that we do. And then she says, just some food for thought. So thank you, Caitlin. I've got an email here as well about our our two-parter on food and foodie culture from Charles. And Charles, you did have a lot to say about foodie culture. You know who you are. And uh, I'm just going to read the first part of his email, too, that says, Now, between my interest in Pinterest, my obsession with cats, and the fact that I generally enjoy everything you guys do, I feel a little emasculated, but in a good way. Thank you, Charles. And um, I'm going to jump down to when he's talking about food and foodie culture, because Charles is a sous chef. So we're talking to someone who's got some irons in the fire. And, oh, man, he's this is a five-page email. I'm not Charles, I hope that you don't mind me outing you um, as writing an in- incredible email of great length. So here we go. He writes, Folks concerned with the elitist nature of organic slash artisanal have bandied about much criticism of foodies. The claim is that being a foodie isn't necessarily accessible to the regular folks out there. But hasn't every cultural movement started as the interest of a select privileged few? I mean, people protesting in the Occupy movement aren't typically on food stamps or welfare. Or if they are, they tend not to have started that way. Nearly every revolution in culture and politics has come out of the middle class. That's not to say there's anything wrong with the privileged white people standing for things, just that there's a lack of self-awareness about just how privileged most white people that go to college and care about stuff actually are. That being said, look at the course of food culture over the last 30 years. Alice Waters has probably done more to advance the cause of good, healthy food for all than any single person until Michael Pollan. And she's not even a chef. Jonathan Waxman and Jeremiah Tower were the real chefs at Chez Panisse. As mentioned above, every aspect of mainstream culture tends to be filtered through the subculture or hipster, according to Norman Mailer's original definition of the word. As the mainstream media jumps on any particular bandwagon and Old Navy starts releasing off-the-rack vintage t-shirts, the mainstream adopts the subculture and hipsters move on to the next cool thing. I don't mean to sound too tongue-in-cheek or derogatory about any of this. The next cool thing is not necessarily a bad thing, as long as the interest is not in cool for its own sake. So not in aioli sauce for its own sake. That was my own bit. Its own aioliness. Aioliness. Aioli sauce for its own aioliness. So uh, thank you, Charles, and everyone who's written into momstuffatdiscovery.com. That's where you can send your letters. You can also message us on Facebook. Like us there while you're at it. And follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. You can also check out our Tumblr. We are at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And if you want to learn so much more about health, doctor's offices, and medical history, you know where to find it. It's at our website, HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 